0: It's like perfect, yeah, even though it snowed, it's snowed, the sun's out.
1: This is Zol Zani. It's early in the morning, and he's got his hands full. One hand holds a breakfast burrito. The other is on the wheel of a black truck towing a 1,000 gallons of water. The side of the truck reads, Water Warriors. Zol delivers water to families all across the Navajo Nation, families that don't have running water, on this morning in December 2021, he's in the northwest corner of New Mexico. Browns and oranges blanket the landscape. Freshly fallen snow glitters in the morning sunlight. But the ground underneath his truck is not so nice. Zol just ran into some trouble.
0: Oh crap, this is not good. I'm just sliding back. Like if that trailer decides to go one way or another, my wheels are like this, but it's just doing that.
1: Audio producer Georgina Hahn is riding along this morning.
2: The mud flying was pretty epic. I got a little video. Of that.
1: The road's washed out, and the wheels are spinning in the mud. Zol gets out to see what's wrong.
0: The truck's just too heavy. The trailer's too heavy. I think what we're going to end up having to do is back up and try to make a run at it.
1: Zola's got to find a way to get his truck up the hill. Some families there have been waiting weeks for this water. Forty percent of those living on the Navajo reservation don't have access to running water. That's perhaps 69,000 people based on 2010 census estimates. And in 2020, the president of the Navajo Nation told lawmakers that in one community on the Arizona-Utah border, upwards of 900 people rely on a single roadside spigot for their water. Zoll knows that way of life.
0: There was a time when uh, we struggled and we had to move out to, we call it sheep camp, but the ranch where we kept the livestock. And so when we moved out there, there was no running water or electricity yet. So there was a period of time where my sister and my mom and our family, we had to move out and kind of live off the land, I guess.
1: Living at the sheep camp as kids, it was the job of Zole and his sister to haul water, enough for themselves and the animals.
0: So that's kind of what shed some light on the needs for people who were needing drinking water during the pandemic in remote areas.
1: When Zole was laid off from his welding job at the beginning of the pandemic, he knew he wanted to help his tribe somehow. He was already delivering firewood to elders he knows. So he started trucking water to them too.
0: Navajo Nation and its struggles during the pandemic became the story the lack of infrastructure, the need for help, the need for water. And so now that the pandemic is kind of not at its height, the story has moved on, but we're still here. Same problems, same struggles.
1: Those struggles are bigger than just getting this water truck up a hill. Water access on the Navajo Nation and other tribal lands across the western United States has been shaped by Supreme Court cases and federal and state policy that largely left tribal communities out of critical access to water. In this episode, we'll learn what it takes for some people on the Navajo Nation to get drinking water.
3: They saved up milk containers and used those to haul their own
1: water in. How we got here in the first place.
2: You see, all these reservoirs around the West, most of them are built for municipalities, for states, for mining companies, all non-Indian use. It was never built for tribes.
1: And what's being done to fix it?
4: Once people get over, like, the shock and surprise that this problem even exists in their backyards, they're immediately motivated to help.
1: I'm Dr. Celine Gounder, and this is American Diagnosis. Back in 2020, when much of his hometown of Tuba City, Arizona was in lockdown, Zoll was restless. He was worried about coronavirus for sure. He says he has respiratory issues, but he kept thinking there was something more he could do. That mentality comes from his mom.
0: For me, she would always chase me outside to help. And the way she would say it was, there's nothing wrong with you. You're perfectly capable. You're able-bodied. Get out there and go help.
1: Growing up on the Navajo Nation, caring for family and community was instilled at an early age.
0: For me, it goes down even further into the roots of resiliency when, you know, we are standing on our own two feet and we have to help do for ourselves. And, you know, we can do it. We are a tribe. We are a people. So all those things kind of blossomed from what my mom taught me.
1: All this was going through Zol's mind when he was stuck at home.
0: I thought on it for about a week and I'm not sure exactly how, but I saw people delivering water in pallets, with water bottles and cases and things like that. And it just kind of went off like a light bulb in my head.
1: Zol dove headfirst into this new project. He collected donations and bought a water tank that could fit in the bed of his truck. Through word of mouth, more donations came in. Other people volunteered to deliver water. Now, Water Warriors has four trucks delivering water.
0: So that's kind of how it started in that small area. And then as it kind of grew through social media, you know, the presence grew and the work was seen, but then other communities would reach out and they would say, hey, I'm from this community. We have this many elders that don't have water. Is there any way you can make time to come down and and help us out?
1: Hauling water is nothing new on the Navajo Nation. If families don't have a well or access to water lines, many go to water stations maintained by the Indian Health Service. But during the pandemic, people were wary of these communal spaces. A routine trip to get water for drinking, cooking, and bathing suddenly came with the risk of catching COVID. On one of the first deliveries he made, Zol showed up at the home of an elder just as a daughter was about to leave to haul water for her father. Zol remembers her relief when she saw his truck pull up.
0: She's like, oh, that's great. Now I can run to town and I can do this and, you know, I have these three extra hours in my day that I can do these other things with and get groceries or, you know, stuff to help them out. So it kind of has a a ripple effect with everybody. Struggles to
1: get water ripple into public health too.
4: Water touches every aspect and something, unfortunately, that many of us take for granted.
1: That's George McGraw. He founded the nonprofit Dig Deep. It's an organization that helps families on the Navajo Nation gain access to running water through the Indigenous-led Navajo Water Project.
4: We use water to bathe and to cook and obviously to drink. But having water at home is what enables people to pursue an education and go to school. It's what enables people to have a job and an income. Actually not having to collect water or worry about where it's coming from or be sick because you're drinking dirty water is what gives you the time you need to play with your kids. It's absolutely everything.
1: The public health impacts of this lack of water can quickly snowball. George learned this his first day on the Navajo Nation back in 2014. He was riding alongside a school bus driver who delivered water in her free time. They met a woman named Brenda.
4: And Brenda ran out of the house and she filled up a kitchen pot, like right at the truck. She brought it into the kitchen and she started making tamales. And I asked her like, oh, this is cool. Like, are you having family over later? Or she's like, no, no, I'm going to sell these.
1: Brenda told George she sold tamales just down the hill. She used the tamales money to buy gas for their family's truck.
4: I was like, oh, that's great. Then you can, you know, sort of get around. And she looked at me like, you, you don't get it. My husband works at a processing plant in Gallup, which is 50 miles away. And he drives there to work. He was injured on the job. He came home. We didn't have the water we needed to keep his foot injury clean, so it got gangrene. So he had to go to the hospital. He's been in the hospital for a month with this infection. He was discharged from the hospital 10 days ago, and he's been sleeping on the streets of Gallup because no water meant no tamales, and no tamales meant no gas money, and no gas money meant I couldn't pick up my husband. And without picking up my husband, he couldn't work, and so now we're behind.
1: Climate change and excessive water use are exacerbating these struggles, George says. Much of the western United States has been in severe drought for years. Many rivers and wells on or near the Navajo land have dried up. As groundwater recedes, people are forced to seek water from unsafe sources.
4: A lot of folks we work with get water on foot or on horseback or drive and pull water out of, I don't know, sometimes an unregulated well or the spigot on the side of a building or even like a livestock pond or a trough or a windmill that could be contaminated with uranium or arsenic and make them really sick.
1: Lack of water can also contribute to chronic health problems.
4: Those that are lucky enough to be able to travel and afford water are buying bottled water at the store and it's costing a lot of money and are often tempted to buy sugar-sweetened beverages instead. So we're looking at a huge incidence of diabetes in these homes because in some cases sugary beverages are cheaper than packaged water.
1: George says not having easy access to safe water weighs on people's mental health too.
4: We talk to people who work in places like the Navajo Nation all the time. And, you know, they're working with especially young people who feel really trapped by this reality.
1: (laughs) Wow, we made it. (laughs) Back on the road, Zoll and producer Georgina Hahn got the truck moving again.
0: We threw it in four-wheel drive, and eventually we just had to floor it and inch our way up the hill. That was probably the hardest fight that we ever had, or I've ever had, with any of the vehicles that I've driven in, in the whole time that I've been taking water out.
1: They were on their way to Sheep Springs, New Mexico to make the first deliveries of the day. Oh, gonna to... Hi, is This is Georgina.
0: This is, <laughs> this is Brianna.
2: Hey. <laughs>
1: Brianna Johnson, a local community health representative, is bundled up against the cold and waiting for Zoll. The road just to... Yeah.
0: I might have damaged the truck, actually. Oh no. But we'll figure that out if, if that's the case.
1: Okay. Brianna works for the Nash Chitty Chapter, one of the communities on the reservation. Zoll and Brianna decide how to divvy the water.
0: Um, who are they all? Who has the most people in it?
2: I think they're all, all about ones. the same.
0: They're all one. So we could do what 300 250 gallons each.
1: They want to make sure they can stretch the water as far as possible.
0: That's, it's either yeah, give them all a little bit today or just get half of them today and leave the rest kind of stuck.
4: I think probably
0: just the 250 each. Okay. Let's do that and then uh, If it was frozen then you'd get
1: Zolzani has finally arrived at the home of Sarah and Betty Johnson. The sisters are in their 70s, but you'd never know it from their chores. When Zol arrives, Sarah is chopping wood.
0: Yeah, chopping some wood before the wind hits. <laughs>
1: Sarah's voice is muffled by the scarf wrapped around her face. She points to one of their cistern tanks.
0: I don't know about that middle one. I don't know if it has water or it's new.
1: Zol gets out and starts to fill it. People who grew up in cities might not be familiar with a cistern. Those are underground storage tanks that hold water for a home. Congress passed a law in 1959 that empowered IHS to provide essential water and sanitation services to American Indians and Alaska Natives. The going has been slow getting cisterns and other water infrastructure out. Sarah and Betty got their cistern just a year before we recorded this interview. Betty says the cisterns made a big difference.
2: If we didn't have no water, somebody has a water. Every day, two days, three days.
3: That's why I used to be. No, it's nice. Mm-hmm. Before, they used to just haul their own water because they would use um, smaller containers, kind of like five-gallon buckets down to like milk containers, and use those to haul their own water in. That's what they were
1: using before. These cisterns can hold upwards of 1,100 gallons, Brianna says. The average American family uses more than 300 gallons of water a day, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. The families on Zol's delivery schedule today may have to make 250 gallons last for weeks.
0: Typically we try to get there every three weeks, but during the winter times it's once a month or even, you know, once every five or six weeks.
1: These households can store the water they need, but they still have to rely on a service like Zoll's to keep them full. The sisters are still careful with their water, especially in winter, when it's hard to get water delivered, as Zol just found out.
3: So I try to save my water for December, January, until spring comes around.
1: (laughs) There are water stations around the Navajo Nation installed by the Indian Health Service where families can fill water containers. Brianna says they're unreliable. Sometimes they're out of order, damaged, or vandalized. Until there's a permanent solution, Brianna says elders like Sarah and Betty will have to keep relying on deliveries from Zoll. I hope Zoll does
3: this for a long time because I honestly wouldn't know what they would do or how they would haul their own water if Zoll wasn't doing any of this.
1: Families are going to these lengths because their homes aren't connected to public water utilities. So what's preventing the Diné and other Native people in the western United States from getting access to clean running water? We'll find out after the break. Jeanette Wolfley is a member of the Shoshone-Bannock tribe in Fort Hall, Idaho. When I spoke with her, she was also an associate professor of law at the University of New Mexico, where she taught natural resource and federal Indian law. Jeanette says access to water comes down to one thing.
2: Well, the biggest obstacle is that there's not a lot of water to go around, particularly in the West.
1: Jeanette says this water story starts with something we haven't talked much about in this series, a legal victory for tribes. A Supreme Court case from 1908 called Winters versus United States. The case decided that when the federal government created a reservation, the tribes were entitled to any water they needed. Basically, there's no reservation without water. This was a big win. The Winters case established that tribes had something called senior water rights. This means tribes have first dibs on the water they need.
2: The case would have allowed them then to begin using and filing claims to their senior water right to gain millions of acres of water. But
1: there's always a but.
2: But no one told them they needed to do that. Or that you better start securing water for your reservation or it's not going to be there because everybody else is using it or taking it.
1: The federal government may have sided with Indigenous people seeking access to water in the Winters decision. But that assistance stopped there. Instead, over the next 50 years, as more Americans moved into western states, the federal government started damming rivers and building massive reservoirs.
0: Bordering on the vast space of the Navajo Reservation, the dam site soon became the objective of a slowly growing army of construction experts. Like the Hoover Dam. A modern colossal shouldering the rock-ribbed walls of Black Canyon, stemming and controlling the floods, and bending the will of a hitherto ungovernable stream, the Colorado River, to perform the fruitful tasks of a civilization rapidly invading the limits of its last frontier.
1: Glen Canyon Dam. The dam will back up the river for a distance of 186 miles. It will store enough water to cover the entire state of Pennsylvania to the depth of
0: one foot.
2: You see, all these reservoirs around the West, most of them are built by the United States for municipalities, for states, for mining companies, for agricultural, all non-Indian use. It was never built for tribes.
1: The reservoirs provided the water and also the hydro-powered electricity that allowed Western states to flourish.
2: They began appropriating the water, or taking the water and using it to basically provide for cities provide for swimming pools and everything else. Luxuries. Golf courses. Golf courses. (laughs) Luxuries that people probably never thought it would be used for, you know, instead of just the day-to-day kind of drinking water purposes or for agriculture purposes.
1: Jeanette says, by and large, Indigenous communities were passed over.
2: So it wasn't until beginning, say, in the 1960s that then tribes began to say, well, wait a minute, where's the water that we need?
1: Tribes had senior rights to the water, but by that point, almost all that water had been spoken for decades before.
2: It's called like a paper water right, that you have it on paper that you have the right, but you don't actually have a wet water right that is actually flowing down into your irrigation ditches.
1: Take the Colorado River Pact of 1922, California, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, got together and carved up the water from the Colorado River. That water made it possible for cities like Los Angeles, San Diego, Phoenix, and Las Vegas to thrive. Tribes like the Diné were never consulted.
2: The tribes are trying to get a piece of the pie, but they're coming kind of late.
1: If tribes can secure the rights to water, there's still the trouble of getting it to homes. On the eastern end of the Navajo Nation, not too far from where Betty and Sarah live, the relics of a 19th century law have made it very difficult to build infrastructure like water lines that could bring water directly to people's homes.
3: So when we talk about these big concepts of access to water, access to electricity, we have to talk about land status.
1: That's Dr. Ernestine Chaco a Dinette lawyer and physician. We spoke with her in our first episode. Ernestine says building on reservations, what's known as tribal trust land, requires permission from the federal government. But there's other kinds of land on the Navajo Nation.
3: You have some private land. Some people do have the ability to buy private land on the reservation, like pieces of it. There's public land on there too, their Tudor state land. Then sometimes there's
1: allotment land. Allotment land was created when Congress passed something called the General Allotment Act of 1887. It's better known as the Dawes Act, named after its sponsor, Massachusetts Senator Henry Dawes. Historians say it was a bid to push native people to assimilate. The idea was to parcel out reservations into smaller plots, or allotments, to individual members of the tribe. By forcing indigenous people out of collective land ownership, Congress thought Native people would emulate the way white settlers lived on the land. Open Google Maps and look up the Navajo Nation. When you see the eastern end, especially in New Mexico, zoom in. You'll see all these little squares, almost like the reservation has somehow become pixelated. Out here, it's called a checkerboard. Those are the portions of land that were allotted and sold or lost. As portions of the reservation were privatized, many indigenous people lost their land. They didn't know they had to pay taxes on it, so sometimes it was repossessed and sold. Between 1887 and 1934, when the allotment period ended, nearly two-thirds of the land parcels passed into non-native ownership. The allotment system created another problem when it comes to water infrastructure— An exponential number of owners, Ernestine explains. If
3: you have three kids, then that lot of land is broken up into thirds. And let's say those three kids have more kids. Say they have nine kids, then that land broken up into nine people. Let's say they have kids
1: themselves. So by the fourth generation, so while the number of heirs keeps going up, the land is still the same size as it was at the start. Until,
3: let's say, in the fifth generation, you have. 81 people in that generation, then that piece of land then now belongs to 81 people. And so if you're going to try to put a pipeline through that area, you have to get consent from those 81 people. So if one person says no, you can't build through that land.
1: More than 200 miles away in the western end of the Navajo Nation, there's another problem that keeps water from people who need it. It started with a land dispute between the Navajo Nation and the Hopi tribe. Both tribes claimed a large portion of land in eastern Arizona. In an attempt to push the tribes to negotiate, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Robert Bennett, banned all new construction on that contested land in 1966. It became known as the Bennett Freeze. The freeze was all-encompassing. Residents weren't allowed to make simple household repairs, much less build a water pipeline. Tribal governments say the Bennett freeze sealed 1.6 million acres in poverty for 40 years. The tribes reached a resolution in 2009, and President Barack Obama lifted the freeze, but no funds have been allocated for the redevelopment of that land since. All this history has created an environment that makes reliable water access incredibly difficult for many living on the Navajo Nation. In the face of these obstacles, hauling water by truck is still how many get the water they need for drinking, sanitation, and bathing.
0: On November 15th,
1: 2021, President Joe Biden signed the $1.2 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act into law. It's massive, and it's going to affect a lot of communities. George McGraw, the founder of Dig Deep, the water access advocacy organization, says there's a lot of money set aside for improving sanitation on tribal lands.
4: So one of the coolest parts, in my like, wonky mind, of this infrastructure bill is $3.5 billion that will go to Health and Human Services. And it will specifically go to the Indian Health Service to fund what they call the Sanitation Construction Facilities Backlog.
1: Since 1989, the Health Service has kept a list of all the water and sanitation projects needed across native lands in the United States. Everything from water treatment plants to community bathrooms.
4: Congress has been continually appropriating just a small percentage of the money that IHS requests every year for decades. Not even enough to keep up with the pace of the growth in the list. So every year, even though they get a little bit of money, the list gets longer.
1: According to a 2019 IHS report, there are more than $500 million worth of needed water and sanitation projects on the Navajo Nation alone. George is encouraged by the funds, but says it'll be a huge undertaking to actually get these projects built.
4: And I think key to success is going to be a real partnership between the federal government and tribal government, one in which both recognize each other as equals and in which you know, tribal, especially local and community voices, are really centered so that when people get access, it's the access that they need and that fits their lives and lifestyles and isn't just, you know, some project that a bureaucrat seven states away wrote on paper.
1: Meanwhile, Zolzani isn't waiting. He'll keep delivering water. Back at Sarah and Betty's home on the Navajo Nation, he's finished filling the cisterns.
0: We put some in there already. Oh, you already did to... to uh... About 250, oh. maybe close to 275. Uh-huh. Can I take you a picture of chopping wood? Okay. Wait, just sit right there, right there, just right there.
1: <laughs> Zol teases Sarah like she's family. Okay.
0: Now I'll take one of you chopping, oh. so we can tell our next kids week. out there to get to work. But we'll be back probably. I think next week, okay. once the road's better and it's oh, oh, safer. Oh, oh. Okay, she has Shiaza, thank you for bringing the water us again.
1: A few months later, we called Zol up and asked him to talk about what's on his mind as he inches along on the bumpy road towards his next delivery.
0: These elders that were help, they've made it farther than we have. They've gone through all these struggles that we're just now learning about or that we're still fighting through and they survived and that in itself is a triumph and for them to be there you know making their way or needing the help that we can provide and for us to be able to show up and laugh and talk with them and hear the stories that they have and just to be kind of there in a good way it's it's extremely impactful to a lot of us me especially it, it is just a heartwarming experience and heartwarming feeling to be able to give the right people the right help at the right time
1: This season of American Diagnosis is a co-production of Kaiser Health News and Just Human Productions. Additional support provided by the Burroughs Welcome Fund and Open Society Foundations. This episode of American Diagnosis was produced by Mary Mathis, Zach Dyer, and me. Additional reporting from Georgina Hahn. Special thanks to Andrew Curley. We're funded in part by listeners like you. We're powered and distributed by Simplecast. Our editorial advisory board includes Jordan Bennett Begay, Alistair Bitsoy, and Brian Pollard. Tanya English is our managing editor. Una Tempest does original illustrations for each of our episodes. Our intern is Brian Chen. Our theme music is by Alan Vest, additional music from the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. An Arm and a Leg is another Kaiser Health News podcast we think you'll like. It's about the cost of healthcare and, importantly, about what consumers can do about it. If you have a healthcare story to tell, join host Dan Weissman. He's gathering a community to offer empathy and sometimes a good, dark laugh about our health system. Follow Just Human Productions on Twitter and Instagram to learn about the characters and big ideas you hear on the podcast. And follow Kaiser Health News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Subscribe to our newsletters at khn.org so you never miss what's new and important in American healthcare, health policy and public health news. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. Thanks for listening to American Diagnosis.